Hi, everyone. You're listening to bonus material from our third episode, Glass Bottom Boat. We wanted to include the medicinal and therapeutic uses of psychedelics in that episode, but we ran out of time and room, which is why you have it now, in between the release of episode three and four. There's a warning of sorts. At one point, an interviewee drops the F-bomb. I wasn't offended, but a small child may ask, what the F does that word mean? I do remember he said this. He said those stories were the essence of what it was to be alive. Can you trust that? When they did the biopsy, they found out that I had something called a small cell carcinoma, which is the kind of cancer that's typically found in lungs. That's Eddie Merritt's. And he remembers exactly where he was when the reality of his diagnosis hit him. I was with Hannah. We were on the six train, holding on to a pole and not feeling too steady emotionally. And I said to her, this is the day I've been waiting for all my life. This is the day where the delusion that I'm going to live forever meets the reality of, I'm going to get that illness and die. After Eddie's diagnosis and treatment, he entered New York University's psilocybin cancer anxiety study, where he met Dr. Jeffrey Guss, a co-principal investigator in the study, and Eddie's guide through the psychedelic experience. The summer of love, 67 and 68, I was 13 and 14. And Look Magazine, Life Magazine came into our, our home. And when I read about like LSD on college campuses and LSD this and LSD that, I said, that's for me. And I wasn't able to actually become involved with it at all in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was, because I didn't know how. So we passed each other. It wasn't until uh, the late 90s that I saw the return of psychedelics in psychiatry. Technical term is uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for existential distress in reaction to a cancer diagnosis. Psilocybin is the fancy term for the active ingredient in what's commonly known as the magic mushroom. When people came to our study and they took psilocybin, it is such a vastly different experience than a 22-year-old who took mushrooms to go to a rave. The sense of being assaulted by noise and and loudness and people versus being quiet and the expectation of reviewing your life to find meaning. Same medicine, right? Same molecule. Very, very different meaning, context, and tension. In early 2007, Jeffrey and his colleagues received an investigational drug license from the FDA and the DEA, as well as approval from NYU to start the study. So some people were drawn to, to what we're doing and said, that's for me. Some people said, I get it, but I'm too scared. Other people uh, didn't take it seriously. Some people said, it, it won't happen for me. I don't want to do it because I'm afraid I'll be disappointed. You know, when you're diagnosed with cancer uh, or anything, that, you know, pretty much spells the potential for life to be finite. 
you know, you can get pretty wrapped up in yourself. I certainly did. Some of the people in our study were, uh, from an oncological point of view, cured of cancer. But they still had tremendous existential distress around having had cancer, the fear of relapsing with their cancer, and it still haunted them. So even though it was somehow gone from their body, it was still part of their psychic landscape. In the spring of 2013, I had done four rounds of chemotherapy, and in late June, I was operated on, and it was a bit to recover from. I mean, it was a four-hour operation. I have a new bladder. They took out my prostate. The chemo and operation were successful for Eddie, but he couldn't forget the memory of his near-death experience. Well, we saw people who had existential distress in reaction to cancer as having, in some ways, lost meaning in life. Once you lose meaning in life, life is meaningless. It's a kind of death, and it leads to a quicker death. To find meaning is to be alive. I had a placebo experience, and then I had an actual medicine experience because that's what they called it. They dutifully sent me the record. I read like 200 words, and I did not look at it. I have seen some people who had profound mystical experiences, which led to a narrative that this was life-changing. Um, that didn't happen for everyone. Eddie started with four therapy sessions to prepare for the medicine experience. In the first session, they explain the study, and then they take a history of the patient's cancer. I would try to move them away from telling me about their chemos that they had and their tumor markers, and to tell me about what the experience was like of finding out that they had cancer, how their family responded. An important part of the preparation for dosing is an account of the participant's life story. We're not as interested in being accurate chronologically as finding out what the themes are that have meaning for that person. You know, I remember somebody who couldn't stand. I remember her weak arms. I mean, she just sat in a chair and sort of how the flesh hung from the bone. Her respiration was so uh, progressively impaired that it took real effort for any outsider to understand her. Jeffrey discovered how Eddie's life had been shaped by his mother's multiple sclerosis, how he once believed his mother had been too weak to hold him as a baby. You know, basically I thought, maybe I'll live till 20. I just thought, I'm going to get MS and I'm going to die. He spoke about his identification of, you know, like, it's just going to happen to me. But what I heard is, this is a person whose mother became ill either before or during her pregnancy with him. So his primary attachment figure was somebody who was weakening and fading. So it's as if, as if the universe that's supposed to be strong and robust is fading and weak. And that really colored how I related to everybody. Even my friends. Sometimes I could be really cheerful, and other times I could be pretty, you know, pretty fucking judgmental and nasty and pessimistic. 
Like, you don't know what I'm going through. If you come out of the body of somebody who's sick, uh, it wasn't really too much of a leap for me to imagine either being sick or going to get sick myself. At some point, there was a recognition or a sense of, I'm doomed. The day finally came for Eddie's dosing. Before the session started, he shared his expectations with the doctor. He said he wanted a disruption from how he'd been in the past, how he'd been with others, to not act habitually, but more consciously, to achieve an enhanced capacity for everything, from difficulty to joy. They brought in a chalice. It was a clay chalice. There was a pill at the bottom. Uh, They didn't know what was in the pill, but I had done another pill three or four weeks before that, and I knew that was in psilocybin. Even on the placebo days, which of course nobody knows, the participant and the therapists don't know, and we never knew until the study was completed. I was blindfolded, and I put on headsets. Fairly early on, there was a tune from a, uh, a CD that I have played a lot called Remember Shakti. So for me to have this as a guide is very comforting. And we tell them there's going to be plenty of time for, for us to talk person to person. Right now, keep witnessing what this medicine is trying to show you, what you have to learn, who you are experiencing yourself to be within. Some people divide the psychedelic experience into four levels. The first is aesthetic. Sounds, colors, tastes are more vivid, more sensual, more pleasurable. The second is autobiographical, which is an emergence of memories. That have not been thought about for a long period of time. They are uh, thought about with a greater degree of vividness and emotional clarity. What it smelled like, what it felt like. In the third level, the autobiographical which is made of personal memories, connects to the universal archetypes. It's a transitional phase from what we know to what's larger than our own story. The fourth layer, which would be cosmic consciousness or enlightenment or whatever word you want to use to describe what mystical states are. To help me understand his experience, Eddie shared the doctor's notes with me. 95 minutes post-dosing. Eddie says, I am just going to offer this. I feel less effect than on the placebo, or what I thought was the placebo, but maybe this is it. 110 minutes post-dosing. Eddie says, I think I feel a subtle happiness. 120 minutes post-dosing. I'm not sure I want to speak, but I think I would like to. The word resistance comes up for me, as in, Can I be feeling all of this? At this moment, there is no good or bad, happy or sad. It feels very heightened, but that doesn't mean that I have not had a feeling of sadness. At 135 minutes post-dosing, Eddie starts crying, and Jeffrey comforts him by putting his hand on Eddie's shoulder and arm. Eddie nods. Thanks. It's okay, he says. The tears increase. Some people in therapy are able to 
excess memories, have intense emotions, become joyous, terrified, rageful, and cry in the therapy. That's good. You know, not everybody can do that. At 150 minutes post-dosing, Eddie continues to cry, and Jeffrey says, you can do this. Eddie says, thank you. At 160 minutes post-dosing, Jeffrey says, you do look happy now. I hope it's how you're feeling. Eddie says, it's actually beyond that. In our study, we seek to help people get as close to safely entering the cosmic consciousness as we can. And for some people, that may feel blissful. And for others, it may feel terrifying. For some, it's both. Because that is what's called ego death in the language of psychology. Ego death means just who I think I am. I am a doctor. I am a 62-year-old person. I am smart. Like all of these things that we hold to ourselves to say who I am, if you start to let those go, then none of those have any meaning anymore. And then what are you? At 180 minutes post-dosing, the doctors remind Eddie that they're going to take his blood pressure. And he says, I'm sort of like getting to the point, Eddie, who's Eddie? But I know who you're talking about. If you're doing your, doing your job, you are feeling with them what they're feeling, which of course contributes to their ability to feel it more robustly. At 205 minutes post-dosing, Eddie says, nothing is fixed. It's useless to try and make it stay. This entering into a, an altered state, that's actually what, as I see it, is the core of psychotherapy. The goal of which is the transformation of identity. That's what it's all about. It's to become, in, a, in an evolutionary way, freed, new, being able to let the past behind be more in the present. And I think that psychedelic sessions can be enormously helpful in bringing that exact process about. See if you can give up the doom of, I'm going to get MS and die. You know, it's hopeless, I give up. And find a way to take that next step, especially in the face of doom. At the end of the session, Jeffrey and Eddie debrief. Jeffrey says, at one point, you mentioned your mother. You didn't say much. Could you say more now? Eddie says, I know it was in the context of how I got here, my origin. And I think there's a part of me who has a picture of my mom as someone paralyzed and cannot hold me that I would like to put behind me. I do not want that to be forgotten, but I do not want that to be strictly who I am. I think he's felt a robustness and a security and a, there's plenty for you. Not, there's not enough and there's not going to be enough. And I can't really, you know, like summon it up for you. So this like so muchness uh, was like a revelation to him. Like the medicine experience is deeply, deeply felt. And it's deeply related to who you are and who you've been. But I think this treatment has to do with bigger picture. You know, I think it's an experience, it's a way of being that is beyond self. 
to experience that in that relatively short amount of time is, you know, you really could only wish, wish for humanity to have that experience. I mean, all of humanity. Forget about cancer, you know. But I will say this. Don't do it recreationally, Terrence. <laughs> okay, or, or if you want to, but you'll get more out of it if you don't. You haven't done this? The criminalization of psychedelics in the 1970s stymied studies such as NYU's throughout the 80s and early 90s. But there have been advocates who have insisted on further research and exploration, who have tried to transform the fear of psychedelics into wonder. It's fairly amazing indictment of our society that these substances which have throughout history been used as the flesh of the gods should become criminalized and the substances of damnation. And I think our society has made a terrible mistake. That's Amanda Fielding, the founder and director of the Beckley Foundation, which is a UK-based think tank that recently released the world's first images of the brain on LSD. Obviously, they're based on strong substances, particularly LSD, and therefore potentially dangerous used in ignorance. But um, actually, it's a wonder drug. It's, it's the queen, the, it's, the, it's the jewel in the crown, psychedelic experiences. We should treat it with respect and wonder and admiration. Ms. Fielding's focus is trying to show what happens to us physically when we enter an altered state. What's happening to our brain and body when we pass through the four levels of a psychedelic experience? My mission has been to research the physiological changes underlying the changes in consciousness, particularly brought about by LSD, but also by meditation and other techniques, because I've always thought, what can be more important? than our consciousness, i.e. the inner core of ourself, which experiences everything we experience. It's taken 18 years to get to the level where one can get approvals in the UK. At the end of the 90s, I set up the Beckley Foundation in order to do this research. In order to do the research, one had to also change global drug policy. I got the leading scientists on my advisory board because I had hoped with their backing one would be able to get this research done. But no, it, it was impossible to do it. Um, I finally got permissions in, I think, 2005. I approached Dave Nutt. He talked at quite a few of the conferences I'd organised on drug policy and science at the House of Lords. David Nutt is a neuropharmacologist at Imperial College London. In January of 2008, he was appointed as the chairman of the UK's Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, but he was eventually dismissed after clashing with government ministers over issues of drug harm and classification. And we started with cannabis and doing a brain imaging study, looking at the changes brought about by cannabis. some point, I can't remember when, maybe 2006 or something, we started working on psilocybin. No one had really looked at the effects of these psychedelics with three brain imaging techniques. This was the first time its neurophysiological basis had been um, opened up. 
The psilocybin study actually showed some remarkable new facts. It showed a decrease in blood supply to the network in the brain called the default mode network. All of the things that make you, you, depend on the default mode network. It's associated with important self-identifying functions. Autobiographical information, self-reference, episodic memory, imagining the future. And what happens when there's a reduction in blood supply to that part of the brain is that there's a, a great burst in connectivity between different parts of the brain which don't normally communicate. The cost of that connectivity is the loss of what's been referred to in this episode as ego. The ego gets stronger and stronger, which enables us to do so many brilliant, clever things we do, but it also restricts our capacity to see in a more unified way. It's practically taken a lifetime to develop self-esteem, let alone an ego. So why would I want to give that up? My sense of self, my me, my memories, if only for a few moments. What our research is showing is how amazingly valuable these compounds, why they're so valuable as an aid to psychotherapy. A lot of um, the illnesses of the modern age, and indeed every age, are based on rigid patterns of behavior. I'm so depressed, I'm so depressed, or I'm such a failure, and keeping the person in that state. Okay, now I get it. I can relate to the self-hatred loop. I ate all of that, I ate all of that, I ate all of that. What the psychedelic state does is deprive the system of that repetitive thing and loosens the rigid patterns. And this can be experienced as um, ego dissolution. I can see the benefit of an ego death to alleviate my own self-hatred. But what benefits would a psychedelic experience have if I were not in a bout of self-hatred? I mean, one's only really allowed to think about these things as a treatment of illness. But there's also the treatment of well-being, the increase, the enhancement of well-being. And that, I think, is as equally valuable. There's another side, which is adding to the positives, adding to the enjoyment of beauty, adding to the sense of compassion, what we showed in the music component. There was infinitely more connectivity between hearing the music and memory and emotion, feeling of transcendence and spirituality and wonder. I, I think it's good for one to experience these peaks of positive experience. I personally long to know more about consciousness. It's always been my fascination, how, how to understand consciousness. And, but I think one is understanding it, two is making use of the knowledge. And there's so many areas we can make use of it. Relationships and inspired thinking and inspiration, creativity. So I hope that our study will open floodgates to many more people doing research. Thank you for listening to Memory Motel, and a big thanks to all of you who've reviewed the show on iTunes. We can always use more reviews, so if you haven't yet, please do. Today's episode was produced by me, Terrence Mickey, and Bart Washaw, with assistance from Carrie Ann Thomas. 
and support from Jerome DeRoy, Murray Nossel, and Jeffrey Yamaguchi. Please visit our website, memorymotel.audio, for more information on Jeffrey Gus and NYU's psilocybin study, and Amanda Fielding at the Beckley Foundation, and any merits and his cinematography. Our Twitter handle is at Memory Motel. Episode 4 will drop May 17th. Until next time, I can't wait to see what you'll find when you go back.